This is The Global Gambit. In The Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy and current affairs. Each episode, your host, Piotr Kurzin, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists and policymakers. Seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us and question and critically analyse these matters. This is The Global Gambit. Today's guest, I'm very excited to be joined by uh, Chuck Holton. He is an American war correspondent, published author, and a motivational speaker. He's been a freelance cameraman for Fox News, uh, following Oliver North on his travels, and he's currently a war correspondent for Newsmax. He also did serve in the United States Army uh, from 1987 until 1995 as a sergeant with the 75th Ranger Regiment. Um, I'm very excited to be speaking with Chuck today because he is, as we speak uh, in Romania, having just crossed the border about an hour before we recorded this podcast. And what's really exciting is that uh, he's got um, a unique perspective on this, but he's also been um, part of the Persian Gulf War, the United States inversion of Panama, uh, and he's also been present in many different theatres of war. So that's what we're going to be covering today uh, in this uh, latest episode of the Global Gambit podcast. So Chuck, um, I'm very keen to hear from you initially, um, without going into the sort of intricate details, but since you've been in Ukraine, um, how exactly do you think in, in the bigger picture has the, um, has the conflict evolved? I mean, we've seen the Ukrainians make a market improvement in, in their formations and they've well completely prevented the Russians from achieving their primary objectives uh, to the point now where it's basically we're entering the Battle of Donbass. Um, and I'm just curious to hear from your perspective how, in the time you've been there, what's it been like on the ground? And, and do you think, you know, it, it, are things generally improving or that it's difficult to sort of say it's so black and white? So I got to Ukraine about the 7th or 8th of February, so well before the war started, and spent some time touring around the Donbass region, uh, up and down the Red Line. Uh, we went to Mariupol, we went to Kherson. Uh, and kind of got to know some of those cities and the issues surrounding that that conflict that's been going on since 2008. So um, watching this um, it unfold, I've, at first I was I was very I, I said 2008. It wasn't 2008. It was eight years ago in 2014. Um, so in, in watching this unfold, the first thing I, that surprised me was that the Ukrainians just didn't seem that concerned. Uh, they were just sort of going about their business. And we kept saying, you know, Do you, don't you see this buildup on your border? And they kind of would say, yeah, we've been going through this since 2014. We're not, we're not that concerned. They didn't really believe that an actual invasion was going to happen. And consequently, neither did I. Uh, when the invasion did happen, I had just returned to Kiev. And it was kind of chaotic for a day or two. Uh, and we weren't sure if it was going to take the Russians. And we were listening to the to what everybody, the, what the media was saying, uh, just like everyone else was, that uh, this is the second largest military in the world. They had not been really proven in combat in a long time because they hadn't been part of the Gulf uh, War. I mean, the, the war on terror. Uh, and But everybody expected that they would very easily squash Ukraine, the Ukrainian military, and that would be that. So 
the first thing we did was uh, sort of find some safe houses outside of Kiev in case Kiev fell. Uh, after a few days, it became clear that Kiev was not going to fall anytime soon, and so we went back to Kiev. Um, so just how it's uh, progressed is just the progression of surprise after surprise of how well the Ukrainians have done and coming to a better understanding of why uh, there's that you know, X factor of their fighting for their homeland and, and uh, they, they feel like they, you know, they, they're fighting for their lives, right? And the Russians are not, so there, there's that. But there are a lot of other factors that I've learned as time goes on, as you kind of read between the lines, uh, that are having a major effect on how well the Ukrainians are doing. That said, their spirits are still high. They're still optimistic. They, they have no doubt that they will eventually push Russia out of their country. In the meantime, a lot of people are dying and being hurt in the process because Russia hasn't, hasn't uh, decided on that yet. Uh, so as Russia, when Russia, it became clear that they were not going to take Kiev and that they were having real supply chain issues coming out of Belarus and coming in from the east. Um, that's when I started saying, wait a minute, the Russians are going to lose this thing. They're going to lose this war. Um, and that came from a bunch of different things, but uh, one of them was just how the, badly they were losing the information in the, in the information battle space. You understand that in every war, there are multiple different battle spaces. And one of them is the kinetic battle space where, where the bullets fly. And one of them is the information battle space where the words fly. But the information battle space very often takes everything. A lot, that was weeks and weeks ago, and a lot of people called me crazy at that time, but uh, I, I still believe that. They are, um, every, every time they regroup or they say they're going to have an offensive on Sumy or Kharkiv or something like that, the media spins it up like it's going to be this big, like, this is going to be it. This is it. The Russian, you know, how long can the Ukrainians hold out against this? But then they, it falls flat. And they they bomb a bunch of sort of, militarily insignificant targets, mostly civilians. But you realize you can't win a war by killing all the civilians. Um, I mean, you'd have to kill all the civilians, and they're not, they're not going to be able to do that. I guess the biggest thing that I've seen in the, in the way that this has progressed and evolved is just that more and more people every day are starting to realize, hey, the Russians are not going to take over Ukraine. And so now the lines of traffic that we see going into Kiev are longer than the lines of traffic to get out of Kiev. And the lines of traffic, you know, uh, coming into Odessa are longer than the lines of traffic going out of Odessa. There are still people leaving. There are still people fleeing the country. And they're fleeing ahead of the Russian advance or the Russian, I, I say advance, in many places are not even advancing. But this is not going to be the cut and dried Russian victory any everybody expected at the beginning. And that's the thing that is has been the most surprising so far. No, thank you for that. I am um, no, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think being a bit of a weird nerd, I I I type into Google world's best or biggest, most powerful militaries as a kid. And Russia was often number two. Um and I think this is a, a marked example of how uh, just because you have a large mi military doesn't necessarily mean it's effective. 
Uh, and and, and I, it makes me think of when I was reading about the Chinese PLA, my capability navally wise, uh, and obviously the comparisons that have been had between Taiwan and Ukraine, uh, which I think we should remain uh, somewhat um, tentative about. But the thing is that there was a really good point I read in, I think it was foreign policy a while back, and it was simply, we've never seen the Chinese Navy in use, actually in action. So it's like, we've got all these scenarios and war games mapping out potential invasion from uh, mainland China into Taiwan, but we don't actually know what it's like on the ground. So, and the Russian uh, invasion into Ukraine is, is quite uh, illustrative that just because it has once an effective army doesn't really actually mean it, well, is really that effective uh, in the 21st century. So just on one of the points that you also mentioned that I'm particularly interested in, I remember reading an op-ed, I think it was in the uh, Wall Street Journal, and it was talking about this this use of dumb bombs and, and um, smart bombs. Now, what they said was that, roughly speaking, for every dumb bomb, you have 10 smart bombs or precision-guided uh, missiles, as, as, uh, as we might know them, in the UK. With Russia, it's the other way around. And that's why I think we've seen that uh, illustrated through the arbitrary and indiscriminate shelling that has continued to hit across the country. So I was wondering if you could take us through a little bit what you've seen across different parts of the country in terms of the shelling, but also the other types of bombardments, which you uh, have also pointed out. Uh, shelling and bomb- bombing aren't the same thing. Yeah, so this is uh, another thing that the, the media often gets very wrong. And they, for the most part, you can't blame them because they don't have military experience and they don't understand the difference between, say, outgoing and incoming fire. They don't understand the difference, at least in sound, right? They don't understand the difference between shelling and rocket attacks. Uh, but there is, a, there is a difference. And the difference it comes down to range. So the reason that uh, Kiev does not look like Kharkiv and Mariupol is because the Russians were never able to get close enough to use their heavy artillery. So the only thing that they could use was their rockets. Now, their precision fires, as as they're often called, precision-guided missiles, turn out they're not very precise. Uh, They can get you to uh, maybe the grid square where your intended target is, but... uh, not much more accurate than that, at least from what I've seen. Um, and so, it, you know, it makes a big difference if you're aiming for a, uh, I don't know, if you're aiming for a bridge and you hit the road off to the side of the bridge or you hit the river instead, I mean, you, you yeah, close doesn't really count. Uh, so as a matter of fact, I just crossed a bridge uh, today that had a an attempt by the Russians to take the bridge out and there was a a hole in the road on one end of the bridge, but they they hit the road and not the bridge, and so the bridge is still there, and people just drive around the hole uh, where the where the missile struck. Same thing with many of the the strikes that we've seen in Mikolaev over the last few days. I can't get into too much about what they you know what they were aiming at, but I can tell you that they weren't hitting what they were aiming at, and instead at one point they hit a giant pile of hay. Uh, with a very expensive missile and burned it and burned that hay up. That hay will not ever join NATO, I promise. Um, and and one time they they hit the post office. Uh, that that wasn't really helpful, other than the fact that you can't mail a letter out of Kiev. I mean, out of Mikolaev anymore. They are resorting more and more to the non-precision guided dumb bombs, but those have to be dropped by an airplane, which means you have to fly an airplane into Ukrainian airspace. And with Stinger missiles about, 
that the, there's a risk to that, right? So uh, they've been kind of reticent to do that on a large scale. I expected with the world's second largest military that there would be wave after wave of bomber. It, it would look like the firebombing of Dresden uh, in Kiev after day one. And they haven't even been able to knock out the power grid anywhere that I know. I mean, other than, than uh, Mariupol and, and some in Kharkiv. But uh, it's it's mind-boggling that they haven't even been able to knock out the power grid. So, uh, I you know, the fact that they are using up their limited supply of precision-guided missiles and grad missiles and smirch missiles and things like that, we're seeing more and more of the multiple launch rocket systems being used where, you know, they'll fire 40 rockets at an area and just carpet a whole area with uh, the cassette. They call them cassette bombs here. And that throws me off because that's not what they're called in the, in the they're called cluster bombs, um, breaking lots of windows and uh, killing a lot of civilians. But they're, again, they're not being used in the way that they were meant, which is against troops in the open or uh, things like that. One other thing I just want to cover real quick so that I don't forget. Um, I've heard some, people talking about well they're using they're you know they're they're rocketing these housing developments and schools and hospitals and stuff because the ukrainians are putting you know their command centers in the hospital or they're putting a, a rocket system at a school or something like that and that is absolute russian propaganda i have been all over this country both before and during this war and i have never not once seen a combat unit deployed in an urban area uh, in uh, and among civilian the civilian populace the ukrainians are not putting weapons or command centers or anything like that in hospitals hotels schools uh, residential areas or anything of the sort i have seen those combat units and i know where they are deployed and they are all out in rural areas away from the civilian populace. So I just wanted to make sure I got that out there, Piotr. No, absolutely, it does. Um, and it's almost like you, you're reading my mind, because the next question I wanted to a little bit um, go further into is this, um, is this reach uh, and influence of sort of – I hesitate with using the word propaganda when it comes to the Ukrainians, with the Russians, of course, but with the, um, the Ukrainians, there's certainly manipulation of data, I think, that both sides are obviously mm -hmm. trying to frame the narrative to – to emphasize uh, the war in a certain way to, to benefit their goals and also just to keep morale up and, and things like that. But from, from what you've been uh, seeing on the ground, reading, and, and just generally, how is the war perceived um, among the general populace in, uh, in Ukraine versus sort of some of the things they maybe consume uh, in, in, in a Russian format or, 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 um, or further eastwards in the country? If you could take us through that, I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. The further east you go, the more people there that you will find who will only have access to Russian satellite channels. Actually, my my driver Igor went to check on his aunt today because she lives in a, near a, like within two blocks of a place where a two thousand pound bomb fell. She was fine, uh, but he said, you know, it's kind of ironic because she really believes the Russian propaganda because that's what she watches because her. TV channels come from Russia. Uh, and and there are a lot of people in Ukraine like that. that to, not only Ukraine, actually. I took a three-week hiatus in the middle of this thing and went to, uh, to Armenia, uh, among other places. But in Armenia, they are getting nothing but 
the Russian propaganda channels. And they sit and watch that stuff all day long. And many people in Armenia um, believe what they are watching on Russian TV. And I had, I had lunch with a, a Armenian family, working class couple, nice folks, but he had the TV on the whole time. And, and, uh, he brought up politics. I didn't, but he said, Oh, you know, everything that the Ukrainians are saying is just propaganda. It's all lies. He said the the, you know, massacres in Bucha and Irpin, those were all staged. That didn't happen. And I said, stop right there. I was in Irpin. I was in Bucha. I saw it with my own eyes. It was not propaganda. It happened. And he stopped and he looked at me and he said, it did? And you could tell it just like completely rebooted his whole his whole worldview, his mindset just crashed right there. And, and he, he thought for a minute and then he said, you know what? The side that wins this war is going to be the side that lies the best to its people. I thought that was kind of profound coming from him. Now, uh, to, to put a finer point on what you, or to answer your question a little bit better, Pewter, the both sides, yes, are engaging in propaganda. It's, it, it's information warfare. It's that information battle space. And they're both trying to shape it. Russia is a master of shaping the battle space um, f- for the people who consume its content. But many Ukrainians and most Westerners don't come don't consume RT. They don't consume Russia One, you know, they, they, those those uh, Russian state media outlets. And if we do, we find what they're saying to be kind of ridiculous because it doesn't jive with our, our Western sensibilities. But what they are putting out definitely jives with the sensibilities of many people in Russia and in former Soviet states and things like that. So Really fascinating. Uh, I uh, I think your last point is so pertinent. Um, it's so effective if it's the only thing you can bloody consume. I hundred percent agree. Like, really want to underline that that point for our listeners. Um, and and so uh, going further again towards this eastern western divide, if you want to, in sort of quotation marks very loosely, you know, there is a notable difference. It's specifically in the further eastwards you go, there is a little bit more. And when I say a little bit, I really mean incrementally a little bit more sort of Russian presence or orientation, right? Mm-hmm. In the 1991 um, referendum, for example, um, in the west of Ukraine around Lviv and the oblasts, it was sort of 95 to 100% of people voted to, to leave the Soviet Union. And the further eastwards you went, um, this dropped dramatically to 80 to 85%. I'm being very sarcastic in that most people wanted to, uh, overwhelmingly wanted to seek uh, independence and become the sovereign state of Ukraine as we know it today. The only place where it was notably close was in Crimea, which was around 54%, I think, that voted to, but they still voted to leave um, as well. So what I'm trying to emphasize here is that Ukraine is overwhelmingly in favor of independence and not being uh, associated or under the auspices of the Russian Federation, right? not to be in its orbit. And this has only become more intensified after 2014, even the events in Georgia, the color revolutions, uh, and obviously now what's happened this year. So 
Um, I'm just curious if you could take us not just in the information sense, but in the time you've been further eastwards, has there been a notable presence of sort of, you said about Russian uh, state TV, but what about just a sort of the use of the Russian language, the use of Russian in, I don't know, uh, menus or, you know, very arbitrary things like that, billboards. Uh, could you take us through if there's a notable distinction between, say, parts of um, Western Ukraine and, and the, the Hens, Luhansk or uh, Zaporizhia oblasts? Yes, uh, I, I, there absolutely is the the number of people who are sympathetic to Russia rises dramatically when you get down into the Donbas region, and and I got within maybe four kilometers of uh, the airport in Donetsk uh, before the war started, and um, I, I was actually doing a live broadcast and was all but assaulted by a half-drunk Ukrainian man who was speaking Russian, who was, he didn't even hear what I was saying. He didn't speak English, but he saw me making a report and came over and said, lies, it's all lies. And he, he literally like walked on camera while I was making my live report. And so I just, I didn't know what else to do. I put my arm around him and smiled at him and stuck the microphone in his face and said, tell me what you think. And in English, and he just rambled for about. Now they cut away from me, so he wasn't actually on the air. Um, but but he thought he was, and the camera was still pointing at him. So he spoke very passionately to the camera for about two minutes, and I just sat there, and nodded and nodded and nodded, and then just let him say his piece. And then he ran out of words, and he turned around and kissed me on both cheeks and wandered off. <laughs> it was really interesting. But uh, I have to say, I mean, even in those areas where I, I was told it was 70 to 80 uh, percent people of Russian ancestry that lived there uh, who had family in Russia, who, you know, you can practically throw a stone into the separatist held areas there. Even there, I couldn't find but just a very small handful of people who didn't want to join the EU. Those people, especially because of the threats that were being made by Russia at that time before the war started, those people, Putin made it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Those people said, you know, I, I was pretty sympathetic toward Russia up until about a month ago when he started massing troops on our border. And you know what? Now I think we need the protection of the, of the EU. So uh, he pushed them into the arms of NATO. I mean, I'm not going to go down <laughs> the, the multiple rabbit holes of, um, you know, the underlying causes of this whole war. And um, but Chuck, just to switch gears a little bit then. So, you know, we've touched upon Ukraine itself and the Russian Ukrainian perspectives, but I also want to expand outwards a little bit and, and with your experience elsewhere as a field reporter and, and what you've seen in other theatres of war that you've, you've been um, not only perhaps reporting on, but also been active in. Um, and I guess one of the main questions for me is, how does this war compare to some other theatres that you've been in? Uh, let's start, shall we say, maybe with the uh, military approach from either side. Well, this is the closest thing that I can imagine to what World War II must have been like. Um, you know, I never in my wildest dreams imagined that I would be covering a land war in Europe. I just I just never imagined that. 
and especially uh, it, it it feels especially so because Russia is fighting it as if it was World War II almost, uh, and that's part of the reason why they're losing. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, every conflict that I have covered has its own flavor, and just like every hurricane that I've covered has its own flavor. Uh, I mean, every every disaster. Just there are a thousand different ingredients that go into a, a crisis and and they each come out with their own flavor. That's the best way I can describe it. Um, this one just was was pretty grim at the beginning. And I've never seen this is like a Super Bowl game where your team looks like it's really going to get crushed. And all of a sudden they're just like they're just throwing touchdowns like it's like crazy. Now, as Ukraine doesn't everything right, no, they've they've certainly blundered, part partially because they were they were terribly unprepared for this. Um, in in many ways, in some ways they were very prepared because they had been under this threat for eight years. But in in some ways they were just terribly underprepared. And actually, I've been having this discussion with some of the Ukrainians that I've met about how we have this culture of doomsday preppers in the United States who pretty much live for something like what the Ukrainians are going through right now. I wouldn't say we live for, for that, but I mean, they, they prepare for that. They, 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 they don't want it to happen, but there are people who are very serious in the United States about prepping, you know, storing up food, storing up ammunition, storing up weapons, uh, getting, get, you know, having a bug out vehicle, everything kind of, that is not in the culture in Ukraine. And I was telling a lot of people, it's too bad that you didn't have a, a bunch of people like that because uh, you wouldn't have had so much panic buying the day that Russia invaded. Um, but uh, it's pretty, it, it has been very fascinating, without a doubt. Uh, and, and strange in another way, because this war is the first war that really has been fought so much in the information battle space that the information battle space leads and the kinetic battle space follows some of the creative things that Ukraine has done to fight in the information battle space just blow my mind. I remember at the beginning of the war where they set up a hotline and advertised on Facebook and stuff in Russia. If your son is fighting in the special military operation in Ukraine and you haven't heard from him and you'd like to find out where he is, call this number and we will do our best to find your son for you. And all these concerned Russian mothers were calling this hotline, and the phone was being picked up by trained female operators in Ukraine. And they were saying, yes, well, what unit is your son in? And when was the last time you heard from him? And do you know what direction he was going? And what has he told you about his unit? And how did the, how does, And all of this information was being recorded. Unbelievable trove of intelligence being gleaned from all that. And then they were recording the, the phone calls of these mothers sobbing and saying, my son didn't want to go fight. He didn't even know he was going off to war. And then they were playing those things on the Internet to, sh- to show the world how evil Putin is. And, I mean, what a masterstroke. That's just mind-boggling. I've never heard of such a thing. I mean, that, that's been really fascinating about this war. And I could go on and on about examples like that. Well, um, I do have a, <laughs> well, no, I, I think it's, um, it's important to, to be transparent, but also just like 
yeah, just I mean, we're talking about war here. There's no sugar coating it. Um, and, I, and I think, to be frank, in in what you've seen or how it compares to some other things you've experienced and been got caught in the middle of, so to speak, is uh, is is necessary. The one thing I do want to ask you though is is particularly about Syria because you mentioned uh, in previous times we've conversed that you were there to a certain extent and what some of the things you've seen uh, there relative to the Ukrainian conflict, but also specifically I'm interested to know about, because this was the other theater that we saw the Russian military really begin to get engaged, not as much on the ground forces level, but with airstrikes and just actively being um, directly engaged, not necessarily via proxy. Um, And I just was wondering if you could take us through a little bit more about the comparisons you've seen between um, Russia's engagement in Syria and Russia's engagement in Ukraine. What I learned about Russia in Syria prepared me for what we are seeing in Ukraine in the level of brutality. uh, Russia made it very clear in Syria. They just don't care. They just, I mean, they're just maybe culturally, I don't know. They just don't care about human life in the way that we do in the West. And so, uh, you know, if there was the slightest idea that maybe there was a target, I mean, I, I know of lots of instances in the war in Afghanistan where we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was a Taliban meeting going on in a particular house at a particular time. And our special operations guys wanted to go and swoop in there and take those guys out. And they were thwarted and not allowed to do that because we didn't have enough information about who else might be in the house, whether or not there were women and children there. And uh, I know of times when we were literally being shot at from a particular house on a, on a hillside uh, as we were going down a, a valley and we were getting machine gun fire from that house and we had air, air cover, we had uh, helicopters and we're calling the helicopters and saying, can you please shoot that house for us so we can, you know, get out from behind this big rock. They, and the helicopter said, I'm sorry, I'm not cleared to fire on that house because we don't know if there's women and children in that house. And we literally had to sit there and wait until they run out of ammo or something before we could move. I mean, that that's the kind of thing that American forces went through in Afghanistan, where the rules of engagement were that strict. The Russians go, there might be bad people in that village, and they just raise the village to the ground. They just bomb it to smithereens. So, so it's a way different mindset. So I'm, I'm not surprised by what I'm finding, by the brutality I'm seeing in the uh, here in here in Ukraine because of that. Um, that said, aside from the Russians, the war in Syria is a far different animal because you have essentially three teams that are fighting, uh, or maybe even four, over the same ground. They're all contending over the same ground. Uh, I remember when I was there in November, I was in a town called Ainisa, and there's Americans and supporting the Kurds. That's one team. They're at the hospital. There, on the other side of the street, there are the Turks and the Free Syrian Army, which is like the United Nations of ISIS. Uh, and then you have the Syrian Army and the Russians over on the other side of town. And they're all sort of fighting with each other a little here and there, uh, low grade, because it's been going on for a long time. But Main Street is neutral territory because that's the only place you can buy food. So you'd go down Main Street to, to buy some falafel and there'd be a Russian guy walking next to you over here. There'd be some, some free Syrian army guys on the other side of the street 
and you all kind of give each other the dirty eyeball and then you go back to your corners. It was really strange, really strange. So, so that makes cereal far different and it's been going on for a lot longer, which, you know, conflicts tend to calcify over time. And so this uh, war in Ukraine is a fresh wound that's just recently been opened. It's still very bloody. The war in Syria is very calcified. And so it, it gets ripped open from time to time, but it's a, it's a different animal. It, it certainly gives me a, a good perspective on it. And I think many people listening in will be, I mean, you know, rules of engagement, ROE, uh, as they're known, is, 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 is notably different, markably different. It's, uh, it's based in, at least in the Russian perspective, in, in this Soviet doctrine, you know, the way that the Soviet would deal with the, uh, the Second World War and how they um, began pushing back against the Nazis, uh, particularly in areas like Stalingrad. Um, they, you know, they learned a lot from the Nazis themselves and they just, they fling uh, just individuals' bodies, uh, I, I hate to use these words, at the problem. They just don't, they don't look at um, casualties in the same way. They almost look at it as a sense of pride because it's, 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 in, it's one person standing up for, for country and cause. Uh, whilst we in yes. the West and other places seek to minimise those casualties, a very different yes. perception of of um, uh, of conflict is this uh, is this concept of absolute war, which uh, Clausewitz and others have uh, uh, have have coined in in military historian past. Um, so no, I, I, it pains me to hear you say that, uh, being half Russian myself. Um, but it's it's not really something we can um, we can hide away from. You know, it's it's not serving the Russians well and. They seem to be just going backwards, the, the sinking of the Moskva uh, and, and reading reports in the past couple of days that now Russian families are beginning to think about, well, where are my kids? Where are my conscripts? Uh, and so I was just wondering if you could take us through, have you seen Russian military equipment? Have you seen um, some of the things on the ground and how that compares to other theatres of war? Are they, have they really used some of their best stuff or is this just sort of they, they went in there with a half-hearted effectiveness thinking they would just steamroll the Ukrainians? What's it been like in terms of military like, loss and uh, equipment are used, if that makes sense? I've seen a lot of Russian military equipment. Most of it is burned to a but I've seen uh, quite a bit uh, that is actually um, – you know, be, has been captured and is being uh, towed to the rear and being repurposed, repainted, and then sent back into the fight. I have to say it's kind of a mixed bag. You'll see, you know, T-80s and T-90s, and then you'll see these trucks that look like they'd rolled right out of World War II. I think what that says to me is that they really neglected, they, they spent their money on the really sexy things that look good in parades, and they really neglected the things that keep those sexy weapons running, the trucks. That that's the sense that I've gotten. I, I love the um, the candidness of the description there. I think that's interesting. Um, the other thing that's um, you know we 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 saw quite early on in the Syrian um, civil war, which continues to to on go, that you know the Russians really didn't. They didn't want to get more involved than they did, but also they didn't want to sort of share too much of their equipment with some of the Syrian forces. There was there were quite a few claims to be to doing that, and in this case, the Russians have gone in there with all their some well some of their top tier equipment. So, a couple of sub questions here was one: what about the things of like thermobaric bombs and this idea of chemical or 
uh, biological weaponry. Um, and and is that are there are there any essences of that? What do you think that this that the willingness for the Russians to commit so much is is illustrative of what Ukraine means to them symbolically, strategically, and and so on? Uh, well, I I have not seen any chemical. Uh, there was one story that came out where they thought they had found some sarin gas, but it turned out to be a, uh, some kind of equipment to detect uh, chemical equipment. There is great concern among the Ukrainians that Russia will resort to chemical or tactical nuclear weapons. I kind of don't see that happening um, just because of the the repercussions that would have. And I think that we would we would know about it right away if something like that did happen. They're not going to be able to cover that up. Um, as far as the type, uh, you know, the high-tech weaponry that they're taking in there, or the newer stuff, the thermobaric bombs and everything, I think they're just taking everything that they can. I'm sure you know this. Every conflict that's engaged in by superpowers is used as a testing ground, as a lab for all their new and fancy stuff. So, for example, there have been a couple instances where Russia has used its new hypersonic missiles uh, against targets that there was absolutely no reason to use a hypersonic missile against that target. But they just wanted to see how well it would perform. They wanted to see what it would do. I remember when we invaded Panama in 1989, the United States used the, uh, the, the new stealth bomber technology to drop bombs on the beach next to the airfield that my unit was taking over right as we were parachuting in. I remember uh, the seeing the flashes out the window of the C-130 about, you know, 30 seconds before we jumped, we, we parachuted into Rio, Rio Hato. I, it's obvious Russia is doing some of that, but so are we. Uh, both sides are doing that. No, for sure. I Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting example, actually. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your your experience as as a sort of troop member but the other thing that i'm very very curious to hear is is specifically how do you think that the 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 role of social media has had in this conflict the gulf war was markedly known because it was the first time really that we got to see well i wasn't even around i mean it was two years before i was around but um it was the first time the audiences were able to see in, in real time pictures video of the war on and from the front line so to speak um but now we're in 2022 30 years on and we've got people doing open source intelligence we've got people doing geolocation um satellite imagery work and there's so many articles of this around you know people helping to pinpoint information about you know where even the moscow was before it went down for example so as a journalist like you know and particularly an independent one what role do you think social media is having in that regard and, and is it a good one or is it a bad one well i guess you could ask yourself um do you think the sanctions against Russia would be as severe as they are if it weren't for social media? And I'm, if I ask myself that, I say there's, there's no way. I mean, part of the reason that the world is so outraged about what's happening is because the world is seeing, is able to see what's happening. And they're, they're able to not just see it, but it actually memify it. And being able to memify something and make it go viral um, really has a, a huge effect on people's psyche, on, on people's uh, view of what's happening. So there's this really kind of prophetic billboard that was going up 
uh, that's still up all over Ukraine, but I, I, I've got some cool pictures of it. That's got a, a rendering of the, of a ship, but the, the superstructure of the ship is the Kremlin and the ship is red and it's, it's at a 45 degree angle and it's sinking in a pool of blood really sort of symbolizes the Moskva, but it was that, that billboard was going up around Ukraine right at the beginning of the war. But that has become sort of a meme now around there. So I think it has a huge effect. As far as the effect it has on my, uh, on the way I do my job, it makes my job easier because I can spend time, uh, a lot more time getting a better view of the battlefield, especially it's such a big country, Ukraine. I don't have to go there necessarily. I can uh, watch Twitter and find out where I need to go next, where I need to be going. Um, because I'm going to see actual citizens doing just, you know, posting stuff on their Twitter accounts and it's going to come up and I'm going to go, wow, where was that video taken? And then that's where I want to go do my reporting next. And then that, you know, I can figure that out. So it, it probably makes my job a lot easier. I didn't look at it like that. That's actually quite a, uh, an interesting take. Um, all right. Well, Chuck, as we begin to draw down this, um, the sort of um, back and forth section. The last question I kind of have for you is really, I like to be a little bit provocative and try and look further afield or further forward, shall we say. Looking at this conflict, again, based on the numerous experiences you have from both in the field as a journalist, but on the, uh, as a troop member, where do you th- see this going? And, and what lessons can we take away from previous conflicts that you've seen and that could be applied to this one to help maybe draw it down quickly? And ideally, and also in any any flare-ups we may potentially see, but also just potential future wars or conflicts in, in whatever shape they may take. And that's a broad question, but uh, trust you can give it a good stab. Well, I, I don't want to try to make too, too, too precise of predictions because I'm always wrong when I do that. It's clear to pretty much anyone that this is going to go on for some time and that uh, Russia is has already lost in very important ways they've already lost in the information battle space they've lost in the court of world opinion and uh, whether or not they lose on the battlefield is going to be determined by really how uh, aggressive ukraine is able to be using the tools that are being given to them by the west uh in the final analysis it will come out that the united states and other western powers were far more involved in this conflict than people right now understand. I don't want to go too far into that, but, uh, but just from some things that I've become privy to, uh, it's undoubtable that Ukraine is doing as well as it is in large part because of active engagement by the West, uh, not with boots on the ground, but you can fight. You can do a lot of fighting without having boots on the ground. And now, with uh, the announcement that their U.S. troops are going to be training Ukrainian troops outside of Ukraine, what does that do to the calculus for Vladimir Putin when he's looking at that and saying, "Okay, well, now wherever they're training is part of the combat zone." You know, I think that there is a real serious possibility 
that this war spreads. There are far too many variables in war. War, by definition, is an uncontrollable environment. And so there are far too many variables here. There are any of a thousand reasons why this thing could blow up and become an actual global conflict in short order, if we're not careful. No, I, I appreciate that. It's not a, <laughs> I always like to throw a bit of a curveball at least some point during the, uh, the discussion. And I just, I, I mean, I would say that the, the foreign minister Lavrov came out in the past uh, day or two and said that it's, you know, Russia would not revert to or resort to uh, nuclear weaponry. So um, the, the likelihood of this escalating to that sort of level is highly unlikely. Um, just to, cause I, yes, like to I, I think so. And uh, because he's going to, if he did that, he knows his, that Russia would turn it into a molten slag heap in short order. But also, uh, I think we can trust Lavrov, what he says about as far as we can throw him. They also said they wouldn't target civilians at the beginning of this thing. Mm-hmm. And we've seen how that worked. No, that's a fair point. Uh, that is a fair point. I mean, we should, in one of the, past podcast episodes we've had we've discussed you know the role of nuclear weaponry with uh, professor jeffrey price of sice and um, but we've also looked at um uh, just generally international security and sort of the un security council as well with uh um with other guest speakers as well such, such as gideon rose uh council on foreign relations um but that draws a draws a close to the to the interview segment of this podcast but don't go anywhere because this is where the fun starts in that we have a live audience Q and A session participation, and um, if you want to be part of that, you can download a um, Twitter or Clubhouse, and you can join in a social podcasting experience. So, uh, first of all, what we're going to do is we're going to head over to uh, the myth, the man, the legend that is Dr. Dan himself, a veteran uh, and someone with a great degree of um, military, um, but also just I think uh, worldly experience. So, Dr. Dan, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Piotr. Really appreciate the conversation. Chuck, appreciate your service as a fellow infantryman from 101st, and I played both uh, infantry combat and also uh, battalion surgeon. Uh, we learned a lot of lessons uh, from Somalia, from Iraq, um, even the previous uh, uh, Gulf War, um, and many more, and including this. What do you see as the lesson learned, or how does how has the battlefield changed from all what we've experienced in terms of urban warfare up until now? And what impact do you think that will have on the future? And to narrow it down really thinly is, you know, you mentioned information um, and, and I believe Piotr asked a question about the, the impact of social media. Having real time information not only wins the minds and souls by having real facts on the ground and information, uh, but it may impact also the warfighter, as you alluded to, the phone banks where there they were, they were mothers calling, and that is an opportunity there. How do you feel that will impact the future of the battlefield? Well, if we're smart, I mean, if we're just talking about Ukraine, I mean, I, I think that the, the die is cast with that. That, that Russia is going to learn any new tricks and they're going to keep fighting. As we, we've always said, the um, generals always fight the last war, not the, not the next one. Uh, and that is absolutely true in the case of, of this war with Russia. As far as uh, what, how watching this war will change the, the United States and its approach to war fighting, Wow, that's a that's an hour conversation all by itself. I wonder, in many ways, I, it, there's no doubt that the Army War College is going to be, you know, slicing and dicing every day of this conflict uh, from day one to whenever it ends. 
in order to to try to come up with some answers to that question. I think that there should be a concerted effort by the U.S. military to fight in the information battle space. One of the big problems that I had with the U.S. military and the way that they were prosecuting the war in Afghanistan and Iraq is that they never put very much effort into the information battle space. They just they just sort of ignored it for the most part. There were a couple instances that I ran into in Iraq where uh, the third ID general was a real bright guy and really up on modern technology. And he actually hired a publicity, a publicity to come over there and write writing actually untrue news items to try to shape the battle space, uh, you know, propaganda. And I thought, actually, that was really smart. That was one of the only times I've seen the U.S. military do that. But the, I can, uh, for, for every one of those, I could give you a hundred examples of times when the U.S. military should have taken advantage of the information battle space and did not uh, because they didn't think it was important and to, to their detriment. Uh, thank you so much, Chuck. Uh, Piotr, if I may, uh, I wanted to follow up on that. So psychological ops, as uh, Chuck referred to, and I'm, I'm 101st, first and five O'Deuce uh, person. So yes, uh, we, we appreciate third, third, uh, third ID being in there and knocking out and clearing the, the way for us when we did our GAC, our General Assembly Convoy, for those listening, um, through on the Jeff, on Saria, all of that. But we did find the way that, that that information did trickle down, did have an impact, uh, and I think it will change the landscape. And to your point of ROE, I loved when you said that the rules of engagement, we take that and the integrity of that um, very seriously. But in this type of battle, that's not really being looked at. So I think it will affect the landscape and the calculation of any, any. it doesn't have to involve the U.S., any other countries involved in conflict. Looking at that piece, if there's no integrity on that battlefield piece, I think there's a problem. I agree. I, I think that's a really good point. Um, and I, I think that when you look at the people who are, are graduating now from the U.S. military academies, um, those guys all grew up in the TikTok generation, and so they're going to be a lot more, you know, with it when it comes to using social media, without a doubt. Thank you very much, Dr. Danton, for that uh, exceptional question, and uh, thank you both for that, that great exchange. That's what this uh, the podcast is all about. Um, next over, I want to go to um, the lovely the lovely Lisa Bab, um, who I believe has a, a great question. Hi, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm my question for you is the journalist Sebastian Younger once made a comment um, in the book Fire. He was, as you know, a war reportage journalist. And he made a comment about being in the line of fire. And he had the, a moment of reservation when he was embedded. And so my question to you in thanking you for your service and for bringing information to the rest of the world, what keeps you coming back? What keeps you out there putting yourself at risk so that the rest of the world can hear these stories? Well, this is what I was made to do. I think I'm very fortunate to feel like I have found the thing that I was created to do. All of the training and experience that I had to this point in my life prepared me for what I'm doing now. 
so, uh, you know, people often ask me like, what's your favorite country? And I say the next one, <laughs> I love, uh, I love to, to see the world, but uh, not only that, you know, to go and just take pictures of pretty things to me, you know, doesn't have much eternal value, but uh, to be able to go and to meet people that are having their worst day of their lives and to say, you know, I can't fix this for you, but I can tell the world about it. I can tell the world your your story, and maybe the world can come and fix it. Um, I feel like there's a lot of value in that. And I don't think I would be able to deal with all the mayhem that I've, you know, and death and destruction and horrible things that I've had to witness if it wasn't for that great hope that by being there to witness it, I always remind myself, this is a privilege to be able to to witness this kind of horror on a regular basis. And it's a privilege because I get to take their story to the whole world. And then maybe the world can do something to fix it. And that makes me feel very, there's a real sense of power in that, you know, just a power to, to affect the good. Yes. I, I think that that's a very, um, I love that. The next one. It feels a bit like me, but when I'm gallivanting all over the place for leisure, not not an actually important cause. So I, I, I appreciate those words very much, um, Chuck. And thank you for that question, Lisa. So next up, I'd like to go to Blue. Blue, you're an um, active military personnel. I'd love to hear your question uh, to Chuck. This is Blue. Uh, Chuck, as a fellow service member that served in the Marine Corps and served in the Army, both as um, for 2ID and now as a uh, instructor at the infantry schoolhouse. My question for you is, as a person that works in the press pool, press, but also having a military background, what are common mistakes that you see the press are making while conducting live shots or taking pictures during the battle space or towards the battlefield? Yeah, Blue, uh, I have said, and you know, it's, it, it just occurs to me that uh, you must have gotten smarter if you were Marine Corps and then joined the military or joined the Army after that. Um, I don't know. That, that's that's pretty cool. I wanted to join the Marine Corps, but um, they, I scored too high on the entrance exam. They wouldn't let me in. So um, anyway, that's, uh, that's some of that. Just friendly inter-service rivalry there for you. Uh, so to answer your question, I see lots and lots of mistakes uh, being made by journalists in the war zone. Um, and it's, it's kind of scary. Sometimes uh, I've seen journalists jump off a helicopter and run right in front of a minigun. I've seen them run right back toward the tail rotor. I've had watched journalists walk up to a three-star general and say, what's up, dude, how many people you killed today? Things like that, that just, you know, the military is such a arcane culture and and there's a, there's a, a lot of complexity to it that if you haven't ever been in the military, you, you're just not likely to. I mean, I, I just put it this way. You're likely to make some mistakes, even if they're honest mistakes, rookie mistakes. And we can give grace for those. Um, it's not uncommon to see anything that's green and th that's painted green that has a gun on it uh, referred to as a tank when it could be a armored personnel carrier, could be a BTR, could be, you know, there's all, all different sorts of things that are, are armored that are not actually tanks. Um, I've talked at length about in this conflict, how the media was misrepresenting what was happening inadvertently by because all of the journalists uh, were at my hotel in Kiev. You know, there were just probably 200 journalists there. 
And I would listen to them making their reports and they'd say, we're hearing very loud explosions uh, as the Russians push their advance into Kiev. And I was listening to those same explosions and I was saying, well, those explosions are 10 or 15 miles away and those are outgoing. That's outgoing fire. That's not incoming fire. And and so there's a big difference in what your report would look like if you knew the difference between outgoing and incoming fire. And uh, so many people on the other end, many of the viewers were getting bad information because they really believed that Kiev was about to be overrun when in reality it was the Ukrainians counterattacking. And, you know, when, whenever a journalist says, we're hearing loud explosions, you kind of say, well, have you ever heard a quiet explosion? <laughs> like, they're just saying, we're hearing thunder in the distance. Saying that we're hearing a loud explosion doesn't tell your viewer anything, really. Um, there's, but, but again, if you, if you don't know, you don't know. And so that's that. Uh, I've kind of taken it upon myself in some cases to try to gently instruct uh, uh, journalists that I'm with to say, well, no, actually, that's not what that means, or that that's not what you're hearing right now. Um, that that's not a, a tank. That's a, a a technical with a machine gun on it, or that's a green painted Volkswagen bug, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, I see that quite a bit. And Chuck, just to follow up, this is Blue for journalists or future jur- uh, journalism students that might be listening to this podcast. What is one thing that one word of advice you would give them if they plan on going into going into war conflicts and actually trying to, you know, display us through whether it's video, media or writing what's going on? What is one word of advice you would give upcoming journalists that want to actually go into the war zones and 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 do their journalism? Uh, Don't go to college. Join the military and become a combat correspondent. And then they'll pay you to learn how to be a journalist and you'll get the arcane stuff thrown in for free. Um, I say that a little bit of tongue in cheek, but it actually is not a bad idea if you wanted, if you actually wanted to be a war correspondent. If you're not able or willing to do that, then at least uh, go and go to Barnes and Noble or someplace and pick up a, a copy of uh, one of those books that I read for fun as a little kid that has pictures of all the tanks and all the armored personnel carriers and all this. I think they're called weapons of the world. And it's a huge encyclopedia of a book. Just read through that or carry it with you if you have to, or put it on your phone or something. And when you see a vehicle in the, in the zone, look it up and find out what it is and be more precise. And if every, if it, you know, you see a vehicle, Find out what the model is and then go look it up on Wikipedia and, and find out what the range is of that multiple launch rocket system. You know, they, they've been constantly in this war saying that Kiev is being shelled. Uh, we're getting have lots of heavy artillery into Kiev. There's no artillery coming into Kiev. It's all rocket fire. And artillery has a range of like 10 to 25 kilometers. And uh, rocket fire has a range of, well, I mean, you know, short range rockets like the Grad missiles and that sort of thing, about 40 kilometers, you know, and uh, in some of the longer range missiles up to 90 kilometers. So if you get a better understanding, if you become a student of that sort of, uh, of thing, your reports will be so much better and you'll have a much better sense of what's going on around you.
Very interesting um, set of questions there. Thank you very much, Blue. Great uh, follow-up. Uh, next up, I would like to move on to Tia, who I think has got an interesting question on the emotionality of war correspondence. Tia, the floor is yours. Thank you, Chuck, for being here and sharing your great experiences with us. I'm really grateful. I was just wondering, sharing the deeply emotional experiences with people like you are now with Ukrainians, how do you feel when you leave? How does that make you feel? I am very inured to the horrors of war almost too much. Uh, if that's what you're asking, as far as the emotional component, um, I really have not, I I, I don't guess I I really suffer a lot from emotional challenges when I get home. I do always notice when I come out of a war zone that it takes a few days to kind of off gas. And my wife has learned to have a little extra grace with me, especially, um, she she won't allow me to drive anywhere. Usually I'm the one who drives when we go somewhere. But when I come back from a war zone, I don't get to drive for at least a week. She drives. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm typically a little bit shorter. I try not to be. But, it, it, you know, war wartime makes a person very direct. You don't have time to beat around the bush about things. And it being, you know, the tact sort of goes out the window. If something's messed up, you say, that's messed up. And, you know, you, you deal with it because you don't have time to beat around the bush, so to speak. And so it takes a while to get back into the swing of those typical, polite, tactful things, the way, ways that we deal with each other in, in polite conversation. I remember even when I was a ranger, when I went to combat in Panama, the first time I went to combat, um, after a month in, in Panama, I came back and they had canceled my car insurance. And so I went to the insurance company and I was trying to get my car insurance reinstated. And the lady was kind of giving me the runaround. And I remember how difficult it was for me to just not lose my mind on her. And I remember looking at her and really having this thought go through my head. A week ago, I could have just shot you and been done with this conversation. Um, because, And it's not because I'm a psychopath. It's because combat is a completely uncontrollable environment, but it's a no-slack environment as well. And the rules, the normal rules of polite society go out the window. So if I'm in a combat environment and... I'm under fire and I need to take cover in your car. Well, guess what? Your car belongs to me. I'm going to break the window out of your car and jump in the window. Uh, or or you're, I'm going to kick in the door to your house and I'm going to take your house. It's my house. If there's something in there I need to accomplish my mission, uh, it's gonna that that's just going to happen. And so when you spend an amount of time in an environment like that, Obviously, as a journalist, I'm not kicking in people's doors anymore, but I do drive a lot in the war zone. And I can tell you, driving around Kiev the first few days of the war, you didn't stop for stoplights. You know, you just put put the hammer down and you just got where you had to go because you didn't want to be out on the roads. You might not even bother turning your lights on at night or something like that. So getting into that mode where you just you, you drive like you're trying to get arrested in order to get where you're going. And then you go home and try to drive at, in West Virginia or someplace where everybody's very super polite. And you're lucky if you don't get shot in the first 10 minutes. Um, so my, that's why my wife has to drive for the first couple of weeks 
after I get back from, from a trip. Um, I'm curious, you know, if you could share with us where you can, um, where we can engage with your work, you, you are on Newsmax, but also where people can follow you, engage with you off there and, uh, and do some of your readings and, uh, and things like that. And any takeaways you want to leave, uh, the listeners in, uh, for this time around. Yes. For the record, I'm, I'm not an employee of anybody, including Newsmax. Uh, and I report for various different outlets, basically whoever pays me. Uh, and I, you can find me just by Googling my name. You'll find out way more about me than you ever wanted to know. And I promise I was young. I needed the money. Um, the, the uh, best way probably to engage with, with me, uh, as far as my work as a war correspondent is to follow the hot zone podcast on YouTube or, uh, go look me up on Facebook or Instagram. Amazing. Thank you very much, um, for that, Chuck. And thank you very much, everybody, for listening. I want to pay a particular thank you to to those of the those of you who make this podcast possible: uh, Joy, um, Sangri, uh, uh, Lena, Diane, and also um, Kathleen. Thank you very much, particularly as the executive producers of uh, the Global Gambit, um, but also everybody else for listening in. But I've been your host, Piotr Krasin, and I thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Global Gambit. Take care. You were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash The Global Gambit. Lastly, don't be shy. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at The Global Gambit. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.